Welcome to Strictly Business, Variety's weekly podcast featuring conversations with industry leaders about the business of entertainment. I'm Cynthia Littleton, Managing Editor of Television for Variety. Today's guest is John Landgraf, CEO of FX Networks. Landgraf is well known as one of the industry's most astute thinkers. This conversation was held as part of Variety's annual Entertainment and Technology Summit in Beverly Hills on September 5th. Landgraf discusses the streaming strategy that drove Disney's acquisition of FX and other 21st Century Fox assets. He also muses about how the incredible demand for original content has rocked the competitive landscape. If the distribution world is going to sort itself around a smaller number of very, very large companies and a smaller number of very, very large streaming platforms which ha- who have tens of millions, even hundreds of millions of subscribers, and so that content is now going to cluster, right? So if you just think about the largest streaming platforms, you know, Amazon, Netflix, Hulu today, you're talking about platforms that have 100,000 pieces of content. You know, they, they are a vast uh, warehouse of nonlinear content. And I, I know that it's... Uh, a little unpopular, a little unfashionable to talk about curation or talk about brand because uh, there's a lot of people who perceive that we're moving into a world where there will be no brand and there will be no curation and everyone will basically be fed what they want via algorithms and recommendations or uh, prediction of their future desires based on their past behavior. I am someone who believes that a, that a society needs curation, that the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and Atlantic Monthly and Variety Magazine and um, many others who do the work of trying to sort through all the editorial possibilities and provide something that's of coherence and value to the consumer uh, do play a role. And you know what we've tried to do over the 16 or 17 years is to imagine an idea about a brand of programming that is large enough to contain that kind of diversity across Everything the genres. Everything from animation to heavy drama to, to the... Right. Gender diversity, you know, diversity of, of, of sexual identity, sexual preference, ethnicity, older skewing shows, younger skewing shows, male shows, female shows, funny shows, dramatic shows, you name it. But that, that there could be a common thread through them. It's the reason we chose the you know, fearlessness and the notion of artistic depth and artistic bravery. Um, and that we could try to make something that was at once large and, and, and could accommodate a large portion of the American viewing public, adult viewing public, I would say, but that had a coherence to it, right? And so that's the dynamic tension we find ourselves in all the time, which is how to be large enough to be meaningful or relevant in an increasingly overstuffed and competitive marketplace without becoming diffuse. Because once you're diffuse, then what value do you really provide relative to, to another organization that's spending $13 billion on programming and has 150,000 pieces of content. At that point, it's a utility. And that's not to say that they don't have good programming. They do have good programming. But it's essentially a really great bundle of programming at a really low price. It's a good user interface. It's a utility. It's not what we're trying to do, which is we're trying to say, and I think HBO would be an example, and there are others that are examples, AMC, Showtime, others that are saying, you know, there's some. We're hoping we can provide you, the consumer, with some value to guide you via our curation and our identity towards uh, a more reliably high-quality work. So that be, it's worth your time to pay attention to what's on our service um, because you're going to find good stuff there. It is. I mean, 
you know, I mean, what you touched on, the shift in just the way that people are consuming content and the way not only just consuming shows, but, but shopping for programming, you know, instead of, instead of surfing the dial now, it's a, it's a matter of, as you say, like gigantic platforms with, with literally hundreds of thousands of content. Um, FX Networks is part of a very big transaction that we've been writing about for more than, for seemingly, well, it's coming up on a year now, um, to, and part of, the, part of the motivation for Disney in buying large chunks of 21st Century Fox is to build one of those big global platforms. Does that, how does that make you feel as you are looking at, looking at the future of trying to maintain that FX, the value of the FX curation? Well, I think it's a necessary step, <clears throat> so I'm I'm excited about it. I, I, I have um, uh, curiosity and some trepidation about how it's actually going to work, but I'm really excited about it because. So, if you take the FX channels, the three FX channels, FX, FXX, FXM, and you basically double count or triple count. So, in a, in a home where there are three, the three channels are available. That would count as three subscriptions. Those three channels are 215 million subscriptions in the United States. And that 215 million actually grew by 2.5 million in the last 12 months. So it increased. And you would credit that to like the, the Hulus and the YouTubes, the virtual MVPDs? The VMVPDs uh, and the fact that FX is in, uh, and FXX, they're in all but one of them, mm. uh, which is one of the two sling packages. But every other one they're in. And, um, but, during that period of time, the number of broadband-only homes in the United States has also grown. It's now pushing three, 30 million people. And those people do not get FX as a linear channel. And I would say it's, whereas linear channels still account for the vast majority of consumption when it comes to the types of programming that's cons- consumed live or near live, right. sports, news, competition, reality, uh, you know, there's, if you actually look at the amount of time spent uh, watching television versus watching video on a screen or being in a social media network, it still dwarfs all other usages. And the bulk of it the is live. The old-fashioned li- linear. The bulk of it is live. But if you want to think about what we do, which is we make scripted programming that for a long time has not been primarily consumed live, that's consumed live, live plus same day, live plus three, plus seven, plus 14, plus 28 on VOD systems, now on FX+. Plus. It's just, it's just you can see it, that the, that the consumption of that kind of content has shifted considerably towards streaming platforms. And so I think in particular in the portion of the business that we wish to address, which is the sort of high-quality, high-end, scripted television business, I don't think we could thrive in the long run without being a part of a large media company that itself has a very large streaming platform and that, and that is an aggregator right, of enough content that 50, 60, 70 million people in the United States independently would want to subscribe to that. So I think the logic behind the Disney transaction is, is irrefutable and necessary. And so then the question becomes, okay, so that's great because that, you know, like one of the things, if you pay close attention to the sort of inside baseball stats, you can see that clearly HBO was sitting on a lot of really good development that they were unable to pull the trigger on in prior to the AT&T transaction. Now that the transaction's closed, they've really been on a spree and they've picked up a lot of stuff that looks really good. So 
they've gotten more resources to sort of curate and develop and deepen their brand in the aftermath of that transaction. So that's very exciting. And then you come back to the dynamic tension of, yeah, but what we don't want to do is try to be all things to all people. We don't want to diffuse the brand. We want to try to have an identity. That identity is expressed as best we can express it through that reel that you just saw. And that's a dynamic tension that I think the whole of the content business and the television business will be in, which is ubiquity, democratization of access, new forms of distribution versus curation. And and all I can tell you is I, I think that a... I think a culture, I think a democracy needs curation. I think what we're seeing, for example, in the news business is there have to be editors and fact checkers, you know, because if you say facts don't matter and you say basically you can have your facts that you want and you can have your facts that you want, those facts are not both facts, right? Some of them are true. Some of them are false. It's not a good thing in a democracy when people have different facts. It's, it was better, Right? Albeit there's a lot that's going on that's exciting from a distribution standpoint in terms of democratization and diversity, and we're right in the center of that. But I think it's hard to argue that it was better when we had four newscasts and most people in America got their information from those four newscasts in some ways. In other ways, it wasn't as good because maybe all those newscasts were run by white men. 23 and, minutes of content. And maybe could, they yeah. all had a bias about what would go in and what wouldn't go in. But you could move the needle on American opinion in the main, when everybody was watching the same thing, and you could address difficult issues and facts that people didn't want to know, you could get into their living room. Now, if somebody doesn't want to know a fact, they don't have to know it, and, they, and the, the way the news media is structured. So that's an example of where I would argue that you know, what the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and Atlantic Monthly and Variety and many others you know, do is of value. It is of value to me anyway. I don't, I don't get my news from a feed. I get my news from trusted Sources, because I think that news is uh, of better quality. Mm-hmm. And applying that to the entertainment realm, it is interesting that it, it, that the, this is such a such a, a schism for television. In that <clears throat> there is a world that is going to live entertainment that you still shop on the shop on the dial, and you still is supported by advertising. I would imagine that you guys are very much preparing for a world, a post advertising world for FX at this point. I don't know if I would say post-advertising. By the way, I mean, one, one thing that I would, I would say is I think you just made a really strong case for the logic of the Disney-Fox transaction from the Fox standpoint because the new Fox that's going to emerge right. is 80% of its gross ratings points will be live. It is a predominantly live-focused business, and I think that's an area where a broadcast network and where traditional linear channels are still can still compete. In fact, they're dominant in that area relative to a streaming service, which is not necessarily the base, best place to find and watch a topical news program or a sports program. Back, back to your question. Um, uh, well, ask it again, I'm sorry. <laughs> about, about advertising. I mean, do you okay, see so ad-supported when I was, kind of pre- When I started at FX, again, this was... You know, 14, almost 15 years ago, advertising comprised 56% of our revenue, total top line revenue. Mm-hmm. And it's down in the low 30s now. Wow. And it's going down. That's by, a signpost of where? By about 1% a year. So fortunately, we have reached all time highs in terms of our revenue because our subscription revenue and our content revenue have grown apace. Um, Ironically, the, the ad revenue is actually pretty flat. So it actually, it's not 
going down now. What's happening is the other forms of revenue are going up, so it becomes a lower percentage each year. And the reason it's flat is because um, CPMs have just been really, really strong. It's still um, a scarce resource, a, a rating point that you deliver. It is. I mean, the truth of the matter is that far and away the best place to actually consume a spot, and there are things that the Internet does very well in terms of targeting and, and um, data-driven uh, you know, curation of advertising. But if you want to actually put 30, minute, 30 seconds of sound and picture and things that can actually move and connect to people in front of them, the Internet's not a good place to do that. How many 30-second ads do you watch on, do you actually pay attention to on the Internet? Um, and so that form of advertising, there's a dwindling supply of a place to really put it. So we're actually doing quite well. And you can now start to see also that, so all of our content is available in an ad ad-supported video-on-demand environment, that amount of usage has been consistently growing over time. The, uh, the ad interruption is half or less than half in that format than it is in the linear. linear. And, but we get higher CPMs, so we're pretty equivalent from a, from a... So what's happening also is the amount of revenue shifting from linear to nonlinear, and increasingly more of that um, content is addressable, meaning... There's data appended to it so that there's some form of actual targeting that you can do, which is the Internet's killer app, is essentially sucking up your data and then using it to try to sell you the thing you've already bought. Um, And, you know, television is now being able to do that increasingly across some of the inventory we sell. And that targeted time is what really, those targeted sales are what really boost your CPMs in in the main when you incorporate the video. And and especially they they allow us to reduce the amount of load, commercial load, because, you know, increasingly for for most consumers who, who have become accustomed to very light commercial interruption on the internet, the notion that they're going to come watch something on our channel live and they're going to tolerate, you know, 14 minutes of promo and local and national advertising, that's just not a deal that most consumers are willing to make. Increasingly, yeah. Yeah. We are absolutely seeing that. Um, And then you, about a year, maybe a year or two ago, you, you kind of did an experiment with something called FX Plus, offering people the chance to pay a little extra and get the programming commercial free have you learned have you gleaned any insights from that from that venture you know the we basically confirmed a strong suspicion that we had which is so you know we've been doing uh, branding research for uh, six or seven years now we do 3,000 people a quarter so 12,000 a year so we have a very large very stable sample and what we see is that Based on the kind of uh, service you are, a premium cable network, a basic cable network, a broadcast network, or a streaming service, there's a kind of trading range in terms of the top and the bottom of brand uh, affinity, right? So FX is, as you might imagine, sometimes at, but usually at least near the top of the affinity in the basic cable. But the trading range for a premium service is higher, and the trading range for for a streaming service is higher still even than a premium network. Which tells you people don't like all those commercials. <laughs> That's right, and that they like, they like the user interface and they like the price uh, to, to the amount of content. They like streaming services. And so what, what's frustrating from our standpoint is we, get, we, get, we bump against a ceiling based on our distribution and, and our identity, our long-term identity as a, as a linear basic cable networks. But more than that, a linear network is not a great place to put 1,500 episodes of television that represent a coherent brand that you've been curating for 16 years. How do you do that? 
you just run 15 episodes, 1,500 episodes on a continuous loop on a channel. How is that of any value to people? People want to make affirmative choices. So the only way you can actually express the brand is by making all that content available in a nonlinear service, right? So we've known for years, and it's been a real fascinating struggle to sort of break down the restrictions in the business model that we were stuck in. You know, initially, networks just licensed content. They didn't even make it. We started FX Productions 15 years ago with It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and we said, well, we, we can't just be in the business of licensing content. We have to know how to make it. We have to make it for ourselves. We've increasingly done that, but a lot of it was trying to restructure the whole way that rights around content investment works so that we could actually have the right to offer the brand because just putting it on a linear channel and then selling it to Amazon or Netflix or Hulu in the back library. And then, you know, so many people now don't even know that these shows are FX shows because where they found them and where they watched them was on a different service. On a Hulu or a Netflix or... So back to your question on the insight. So we, we get these, you know, pretty substantial number of subscribers. They tend to come into FX Plus because they want a particular, watch a particular show, but they stay in it once they come in it because what they find is a really coherent, pretty deep library of content all of which is good. And what we're seeing is people are watching The Shield and they're watching Nip Tuck and Damages and uh, Justified is not in there. So I can't say that, but they're watching uh, you know, all of our shows all the way back. And I, I can see now the usage of it. The big insight, though, is that instantaneously the brand breaks out of the trading range. Mm. Instantaneously it leaps up and it is exactly where HBO is, right? And... We've been, that's the frustrating for us is we've been matching HBO in terms of critical claim pound for pound for years, right? I mean, if you looked at the, the year-end best list, the AFI, which is held in this room. I know you've done we've the been, math. We've been like the same brand, but, the, but we can't break out of that trading range on our, in our current distribution model. And the instantaneously, when we put it in that model and people have it commercial-free and they have all the content, literally you can't tell the difference between the two brands in terms of affinity. So... So that's the thing. I mean, it's just it changes coming, and if and if we don't change, we'll we'll become irrelevant and we'll die. Do you think FX Plus survive? It's not survives, but do you think FX Plus will endure, given what Disney's kind of ambition is? I know that that's not going to happen overnight, but they've talked about you know a late 2019 launch. Would FX Plus kind of be in the way of that in a way? That's kind of, of a, that's kind of above my pay grade, to be honest, Cynthia. I, I don't know. They, they, they have to figure out how to address that. I will say that if you ask me, could FX Plus on its own scale up to 50 million subscribers? No, I don't think it could. Because I don't think the way people are going to buy content is they're going to, they're going to you know, 50 million homes are not going to make uh, buy a single branded service. Right. It has to be bundled and aggregated into... Uh, larger, more convenient ways of buying. And I think what Disney said publicly is they're going to have two, they have a sports streaming service, they're going to have two primary entertainment-oriented services. They're going to have Disney, which they've already announced, which is a family-oriented service. And then they're going to have a more adult-oriented service. And I think my point of view is FX is going to have to figure out how to support, enable uh, the success of that adult streaming service, and, and we need it, and it needs us, and we're going to have to figure out how that works. But I can't, I can't know how that's going to work sitting from sitting here, you know. At this, at this moment, right? The yeah. deal is is still on track. I believe that they've said first quarter of 2019. So there's probably a lot of a lot of details, yeah, to be sorted out. But it is interesting that you just hit on the kind of dichotomy right now. Is like you, on the one hand. 
there there has been criticism that Netflix and Amazon they just they have so much and things get lost. But you 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 so too much can become overwhelming, but not enough is not going to get somebody to write a five or ten dollar check a month. That's a that's real- exactly right. And look, I think quantity and quality are natural antagonists. I think that they can be harmonized, but I don't think they. They are naturally harmonic with each other. I think quantity tends to, you know, be lowest common denominator. Quality tends to be more best spoke and more focused. So, but you're right. We have to get, we have to get bigger, or else why would anybody pay attention to the to the FX letters? Because, you know, there's already so much that you could never consume it in a lifetime. And we have to get better too. And that to me is actually both terrifying and exciting. Is that every year. Your shows have to get better because television continually gets better. It's a tremendously difficult competitive environment, but that's exciting from a creative standpoint. And how, when you say when you say like better, you mean more distinctive programming, more uh, more money on screen, mm-hmm. bigger scope, more um, more innovative, more experimental. You know, I mean, uh, there are many shows on the on the air. Atlanta, maybe one of them that just simply couldn't have existed five years ago, um, and. So and and it's it's increasingly hard, I think, to find the distinctive places. I mean, one of the things that's really hard about this particular uh, brand we're trying to make is that you know we've never said, hey, um, people like uh, spy shows, so just have a spy show and let's have a detective show and let's have a cop show and let's have or let's have five cop shows and five spy shows if that's what they want. We've always said, no, actually, let's try to find a creative person who wants to. Deconstruct, reconstruct any genre he she goes into, whether it's a sitcom or a spy show or a detective show or a miniseries, and do something new that doesn't exist on television. And so, you know, that was a lot easier when we were primarily competing against Showtime and HBO, and AMC wasn't even in the business yet. Now, when you have these services that are literally just shoveling money at and making you know dozens, hundreds of television shows it becomes harder to make a show that doesn't feel like it already exists. And we've never felt our, our purpose in television was just to make more versions of shows that already exist. We, we've tried to make things that added some value to the ecosystem. There's a perception right now that I think, um, well, obviously, the, you know, there's an, an, just an incredible, call it a renaissance, call it a golden age. There is a lot of content out there, and a, and a good portion of it is very good, is, you know, is challenging the movie business in terms of you know the sort of the the mm-hmm. peak of the art. There's also a perception that it's boom times. It's cer- certainly boom time for content creators, but that everything is making money hand over fist. Mm-hmm. And if you talk to people, they say that margins are tighter than ever. Mm-hmm. You've got to put more money on the screen, and we're in this moment where the old ways of networks and studios making money off of shows is changing radically. And we're in that, the business is in that difficult transition of, you know, most of the money comes from the old ways of doing business, but everything has to pivot, you know, 90 to 120 degrees to get to sort of the way that consumers have clear, are clearly voting with their remote controls and their pocketbooks. How are you guys managing that at a time when you have incredible competition to put more and more distinctive on the screen? Well, I would go so far as to say all of the profit really comes from the old part of the business, right? And you're in a situation where actually having a profit is a, is a uh, structural deficit. Because if you have a profit, let's just say hypothetically, I'll make an example, you earn 10% profit on the dollar that you spend. That means to be able to be, for it to be worth borrowing and spending a dollar, you have to make a dollar 10. Mm-hmm. 
if, if Netflix makes 85 cents on every dollar it spends, then it's worth borrowing a dollar if they can make 85 cents. And why is that? Why is a company that has negative two and a half, three billion dollar free cash flow, meaning they spend more than they take in in a given year, um, why are they worth $150 billion? The answer is because right now what's being valued are the, is the acquisition of consumers and the perception that Netflix can get to a place where they have 250, 300 million uh, subscribers and they can raise prices and that that will be an enormously profitable enterprise. They are not, they, they declare a profit, but that's because they're amortizing costs and they're pushing them downstream. They're spending more than they make. So that becomes really hard when you're bidding for talent. Because essentially, if you have to say, well, i got to make a profit on my relationship with right. you, and they're saying, I'll be happy to lose 15% on my relationship with you, they're going to be able to spend more for talent. And I think that's when you look at the logic of a transaction like this, what you can see is that, that, that Disney is an enormously profitable business. Fox is an enormously profitable business. You put them to, two together, this is a very, very large business with an enormous amount of financial resources and an enormous amount of earnings and cash free cash flow. But to be able to invest lavishly in content, it has to get into the subscriber growth business because where capital is being extended right now is in the subscriber growth business. The weird situation that creates, though, is it's a massively awesome opportunity for talent and the people that represent talent. And I'm always thrilled to see talent get paid. But essentially, more money is being spent on content than can be earned in the current mode of distribution, right, at, because people are spending at a loss. And so I think that sustains as long as you have this fascinating game of musical chairs we're going to see for the next group of time, which is that you're going to have a number of very large media companies. So we already have Netflix and Amazon, and you're going to have Disney, and we'll see what Comcast does, and you have AT&T, Time Warner, and we'll see what Google does and Facebook does. And, you know, there are many others. There's, there's Verizon. What will they do? What will T-Mobile Sprint do? Like, there's a lot of companies that would want to be in that, that sweepstakes for streaming service. I think we can sit in this room and imagine that it's hard to believe that the average family is going to have more than three or four of them. Five? I don't know how many. But it's not going to be 10 or 12. So there just isn't enough room at the table for everybody to eat, right? And so what's going to happen is, as long as that sweepstakes is happening and nobody really knows for sure whether there's a billion subscriptions or two billion worldwide, how many subscriptions can the, can the system accommodate across these multiple streaming services and everybody's point of view about what you can achieve is pie in the sky. And I really do believe that the winners will have a really, really strong financial return based on being one of the dominant streaming platforms but as long as you don't know what that upside is and how many are going to make it, you can imagine a situation where there's going to be overspending relative to, to earnings for years. Two, three, four, five, six years, I don't know. But eventually, just like anything else, you get to the top of the S-curve. You know then that you have X number of, of, of services that are going to succeed, and they're going to have Y number of paying subscribers within a margin, at which point the others will have to give up right and leave the business or radically scale back their ambitions in the business and the ones that remain will have to right size their costs right with the actual revenue potential of that so what i would say is it seems to me i mean i i couldn't have been more wrong about calling the the end of peak tv i was just i was just i missed the side of a barn right we're we're just years away from about a year ago yeah but Uh, we're now uh, approaching 525 plus and i i just scripted series on the air and i think that as long as this as this 
competition, this titanic competition between these large media companies exists, and we don't see the outlines of the end state, I think you're going to see that kind of peak spending. But I think that our industry is, is looking at the biggest hangover it's ever had at whatever point you reach the end state, because at that point, not everyone's going to survive. The ones that don't are going to radically scale back their, their spending and their ambitions, and the ones that remain are going to have to create, they're going to have to be profitable. Because you can't, you can, you can basically have a very high stock price based on the perception that you will be profitable in the future, but you can't sustain that as you're reaching the end state of whatever your, your, your revenue potential is. Eventually, your valuation has to be driven by your earnings per share. There's no other, there's no other outcome. Yeah. Um, the, um, the, as you say, the hangover aspect is, I think, very daunting for a lot of people to think about right now, even as you know, spending, is, spending is growing and you know, even as subscribers are, there's a lot of talk about MVPDs, are starting to actually see see a little bit of uptake thanks to the digital guys. It's it's a it's a very fraught moment. But it sounds like because you had mentioned the phrase "titanic struggle" of traditional media versus the up, versus kind of the digital upstarts about a year ago. Do you feel like that titanic struggle is leveling out a little bit more with Disney's bold move, with AT and T putting more more uh, resources into into um, video and competitive? I think we're in the middle innings. Right. So, as I said, I think you can you can now see that, you know, at least four large media companies that are going to be aggressively pursuing a large streaming platform have taken shape. Right. Netflix, Amazon, Disney in its current future iteration and AT&T Time Warner. I don't think those are the last Combinations, and I don't think those are the last entrants. We've got way, Apple, not saying Apple that, in the wings. Yeah, I'm not saying that YouTube isn't making original series or that Facebook isn't isn't edging around the edge of that. So others, but but an Apple, by the way, yes. So you have to add Apple. But in terms of somebody saying, okay, we're going to commit whatever it takes, five billion, ten billion, right? Whatever it takes to be a major streaming service. There are four companies that have said now, okay, that's what we're going to do. And there are other companies that are doing significant work that is not to be discounted, but, but they haven't said we want to have 100 or 200 or 300 million subscribers. But I think over the next two, three years, you're going to see one, two, three, four other companies. And some of those companies will then buy other content companies and create other competitions. I mean, it would be surprising me, for example, if Comcast didn't eventually – take a step to create a large streaming platform. They're a massive media company with an incredible amount of content. They've been content. pretty clear about their appetite. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, my God, we could go on for another hour, but our time has come short and lunch is waiting. So thank you all very much. And thank you, John, for your time. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Strictly Business. Strictly Business.